once you get really good at kayaking, there's only one way to go with it. You're either you're either doing flips and tricks and spins and a hole, or you're paddling class five. And class five is life threatening just by nature. There's a lot of kayakers out there and now they're parents, now they're husbands and wives and whatever, and they just it's just not worth the risk anymore. But they still thrive. They still have a passion for that feeling of that technical challenge and that that uh, I call it that emotional roller coaster of being scared shitless and then getting through the rapid and then being stoked out of their brain um, that they made it, that it's just um, that whole feeling is just kind of addictive. And uh, I really think that's one of the big thing that draws people to whitewater and draws people to just extreme sports like that. Where a stand-up paddling, you don't have to take it to such an extreme thing. You can paddle down the town run in, in Reno and, and and still get the same kind of feeling, you know, just by making it through there. You're like fist pumping, so stoked that you just made it through standing. Monday, June 8th, 2020. Sup, everyone. I'm Paul Clark. Sup, Paul. Welcome back to the episode. Dan Gavir. We're having a conversation with the grandfather, the godfather of river paddleboarding. He was one of the first people to run a river on a paddleboard back in 2007, and he's still leading the charge, still identifying what is possible, and still asking if he could do it. Are there waves he could surf? Are there rivers he could run? Though he's spending more of his time lately with a wing and a foil on the Columbia River Gorge, Whitewater is still his environment. It's the place that he finds home. So even though I'm in Reno this week paddling on the Truckee River, my hometown, in fact, we're having a conversation with Dan in his office in Hood River. Enjoy the show. Without further ado, Dan Gavir. Dan Kavir, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Paul. How are you doing today? I am great. I'm sitting at my aunt's office in Reno, Nevada. You're in your office in Bingen? Is that where you're at? I'm in Hood River, Oregon. I'm in my home office right now. Oh, perfect. Perfect. Well, for my audience who doesn't know you, I'm going to have you introduce yourself as uh, you know the, the river paddler that you are. And this is going to be a history lesson of river paddleboarding. Dan, tell us about your background. Oh boy, background. Well, uh, <laughs> just to sum it up real quick, I was born in, uh, in Spain. My dad was in the Air Force. Uh, my parents moved to Salt Lake City when I was very young. Grew up there, and my dad really didn't give me a choice um, when I was very young. We started going out and doing a lot of camping and uh, spent a lot of time paddling rivers in the canoe with my dad. I got sick of him yelling at me, telling me how to paddle and where to paddle and what to avoid and what to go for. So I saw a guy in a kayak paddle by, and I was like, I want one of those. And uh, before I knew it... I, I want my own craft. Yeah, I had a kayak sitting in the living room it was the first year they released the dancer kayak one of the first classic kayaks out there um i don't even know when this was i would say early 80s and uh i dabbled in it a little bit i really couldn't roll because i was too small um 
kind of took a break from it after a couple scary experiences with my dad on high water, <laughs> high water Shoshone back in like, oh, geez, I don't even remember when it was. Must have been like 83 or something and scared the crap out of me. So I took a little break. And then in high school, I got back into it, had a couple high school buddies, and uh, we started venturing every weekend up to the snake and just, you know, kayaking just stole my heart and being on the river Mm -hmm. and camping. And just I was so stoked to do it. That's all I could think about. And, um, and I just started kayaking. And pretty early on, you you got a, a name for yourself pretty early on. Was that because of races or was that because of trips you were taking? You know, I think my passion for the sport just grew into kind of um, a career opportunity. And um, I was lucky enough that the timing was when kind of kayaking was exploding. And um, luckily, I had some friends and some peers and, and uh, family that really encouraged me to follow my dreams back then. And and that was being on the river every day and meeting just the amazing people and the camaraderie and the community there was just incredible. So um, then that took me into freestyle kayaking. I made the U.S. team at Bob's Hole in 1992 and competed at the Ocoee Whitewater World Championships in 1993. And uh, I trained a lot for that with Corin Addison. I went and lived with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, we became friends in uh, in '92, and uh, went on a two month trip together. And then I went out and lived with him out in the southeast. We paddled the Ocoee every day, and um, and yeah, I did okay in the in the world champs there, and just uh, loved freestyle kayaking and got involved in just the whole development of some of the products and and the industry and. Um, and then I went from there to moving to Hood River to follow my kiteboarding dreams in the early 2000s and moved uh, to Hood River in 2002 um, because I was really stoked on the whitewater possibilities and the fact that the wind blew a lot. And I really loved kiteboarding as well. Um, bought a house here and uh, kind of been here off and on since then. I mean, a lot of traveling and stuff like that, but uh, it's been a great home base and um I was working for AT Paddles, and one of the founders of AT Paddles had just come back from Hawaii. Said, "Oh man, I was in Hawaii. I saw Laird doing this new sport where you stand on this surfboard and you paddle it with a paddle." He's like, "I swear, Dan, this sport is made for you." And I was like, "Oh, sign me up!" I saw one picture. Uh, we we're already building the paddles for kayaking, so it's easy to build a outrigger paddle with a long shaft, and. Um, we ordered a, a tandem, uh, a tandem surf tech surfboard. I think it was, I think it was about 11, 11 six by 26 wide. And the first time I went out on it, I took like, you know, 25 strokes. I was like, this is amazing. It just, it felt great. I knew it looked awkward, but it felt great. And I was immediately curious how it would be to try to stand up paddle down the river and what it would feel like just to peel in and out of eddies and get that same <laughs> feeling I got in a kayak where you just feel the G's coming out of an eddy or something like that, but combine it with the feeling I got while I was kiteboarding or snowboarding or something like that. And um, it wasn't long before I went to the river and tore all the fins out and bruised the crap out of myself <laughs> trying to do it. <laughs> About what year is this, do you think? This was like 07, 2007. 07. 
So this is this is original river paddleboard, and you were probably one of the first you and Corin to even try standing on a board on a river. If you're if you're going back to two thousand seven, yeah, I think the only other person that uh, that I had seen really kind of trying to do that really in the very beginning was Charlie MacArthur, sure. um, and Corin obviously, and. Uh, and we were trading some stories back and forth, and then I was going to Colorado already for the mountain games, and and kicking around some uh, some trips and some stories with with uh, with Charlie, and then you know, and then in Colorado it just started catching on. You know, we started surfing yeah. some of the river waves. Um, you know, that was right when kind of um, they were starting to develop some of the river waves, like in Glenwood, and we were like, gosh, that would be really fun to surf. You know wonder if we can get on it you know because we saw the kayakers getting on it and they were struggling a little bit because a lot of them were in pretty short kayaks but then we were going out there in like 10 and a half foot 11 foot long stand-up paddle boards and just getting awesome rides and having a blast (laughs) so there we were uh surfing you know the river and it was just amazing so it's you know that kind of spurred my whole river surfing um curiosity as well it seems like a lot of people get into river paddleboarding uh, by surfing. I had a, a conversation with Mike Harvey the other day where he was talking about the evolution of building the Salida Park and building bad fish, focusing on, on surfing the waves in, in Colorado. When did you really decide to turn the, the board downriver and really focus on more technical stuff? I think it was all happening simultaneously. I I wasn't just you know, um, committed to this or that. I was, you know, when I was in Colorado, I was also looking at like, Hey, think I could get down the numbers standing up. Like I love packing (laughs) down the numbers. I wonder if anyone could ever stand up paddle down the numbers. How about let's go try Brown's Canyon. All right, let's start with something reasonable. Let's start with, um, you know, with the, with the frog section, I forgot what they call it, frog rock, you know, and, and then go from there. Let's, let's look at, you know, trying to paddle the, the town run on the animus. And, um, so I just started, Mm -hmm. you know, ticking off some of the, some of the kind of beginner kayak runs, anything that they took like families rafting on. I'm like fair game. (laughs) I'm like, you know, what do they take family rafting? Oh, the Deschutes. Okay. Let's go to Moppin. Let's see if we can do that. Cool. All right. The hood river. Let's see if we can do that. Oh, wow. That's pretty damn hard. Let's uh, let's scale it back a little bit. <laughs> Hit the lower white salmon. Okay, that's a lot of fun. That's more reasonable. So um, that was at the same time that the inflatable paddle boards were also being developed, and that whole technology was starting to be um, discovered. And I had uh, kind of done some research and and um, got a couple boards from Uli um, back then, um, mm-hmm. and I really then realized the um, the advantages of an inflatable on the river, because I was tearing up my composite boards, you know, uh, all the time and trying to figure out fin systems. And I was just constantly just, you know, repairing my boards and draining the water out of my boards. And well, there is that great video of you at Punchbowl Falls early on, maybe 2010, 11, around there, where you were just sessioning this thing and finally start 
you know, bringing the fin first and dropping it in and getting the board stuck and jumping at it to free it. And just, I'd be like, whoa, this, that was actually one of my first videos I ever saw when I, when I got into it a few years later, I was, you know, Googling and you came right up with punch bowl falls and celestial falls. And I scratched my head, my head and I said, I don't know if that's <laughs> the type of paddleboarding I want to do, but um, you were there right at the beginning with uh, pioneering and experimenting. When did you get your signature inflatable from Starboard, the stream? Uh, the stream must have come out. The concept was developed in 2012. Um, I, I joined, well, it was earlier than that. I, I joined Starboard, uh, I think 2011, 2012, somewhere in there. And that was more from the racing standpoint because at the same time, um, I was just into it all. I wanted to do every part of the sport. Yeah. I was, I've always been competitive. And um, I really got into the racing part. I went to the first Battle of the Paddle. And I was like, this is sure. awesome. This is a cool community. I love just <laughs> going elbow to elbow with all these guys, with these younger <laughs> guys, and just these amazing athletes that come from um, triathletes, runners, bikers, surfers, paddlers. You know, it was just a, just a real wide range of backgrounds and people. And it was just really fun. So... I was also racing a lot and um, kind of designing my own boards and getting my own boards built um, from a guy in California, Brian Szymanski, uh, who was doing uh, NCP, who incidentally ended up designing a lot of um, the starboard boards for several years and uh, invented the all-star and some of those boards that became my, my favorite race boards um, back then. And uh, yeah, you know, so I was into the whole, the whole, the whole part of the sport, you know, whether it was racing, flat water, um, white water, uh, surfing, that also um, got me out into the ocean waves more because I was like really stoked to surf some waves and get in some bigger waves. I was working with Warner Paddles at the time, helping them grow their SUP mm -hmm. business, design a few paddles, and I was the rep for the West Coast in Hawaii. So I was going to Hawaii a lot, surfing bigger waves and seeing. Um, you know, what I could do on a paddleboard and, and um, on the North Shore. So uh, it was just a lot of fun. It was just every weekend was something different. One weekend I'd be, you know, surfing, you know, overhead waves in Hawaii. The next weekend I'd be, you know, trying to paddle down the middle fork of the white salmon. And then I'd drive down to California and, and go racing, you know, um, two days in a row with, you know, um, the fitness part of it. Um, really coming into play. And uh, I really enjoyed that feeling as well. That's fantastic. And I've been finding that if, well, actually, how, how am I going to describe this? When I was introduced to, to paddleboarding, it was kind of when the Pay It River Games was going on. And so I went out there 2014, 2015, and you were emceeing. And there were, you know, the Kylenis and and uh, Chuck Patterson was there. And then, you know, you and so many other river paddlers were there. And I noticed right off the bat that like the river paddlers had a particular style to do a cross bow. They'd make everything look really good. If anybody was doing any clinicking like yourself, you would just really show like how to navigate a board in whitewater where the surfers, the, the open water paddlers, 
uh, like Candace Appleby, came and just got really low and was able to paddle fast through all of this stuff without knowing anything about rivers, it seemed like. So I realized right off the bat there was a two there were two different styles for navigating river. And then trying to take a subboard out onto the ocean, I realized the fitness level and the ability to to navigate a board, move a board in lots of weird waters. Uh, is an important skill to have to be better at paddling. So I guess I didn't realize then how how ocean savvy you already were. And no wonder you were able to stand on the board and do your amazing eddy turns and leans and boof strokes. I mean, you knew how to run whitewater, but you also knew how to stand on a board in weird water, which probably makes you, you know, one of the, the, the top paddlers simply because of that combination. Well, um, I appreciate that, Paul. At, uh... That's a great compliment, and I, I think it's just really my passion for being on the water, you know. And uh, but when it comes to whitewater, I really feel like my whitewater kayaking background um, was really the most important part in being able to see the line and to know exactly how much rail pressure, where the paddle needs to go, how much momentum I need, which you know, direction my board needs to be facing when I hit certain <laughs> waves and, and and stuff like that. So that was really um, something that that really uh, helped me out quite a bit in, in the early days of, of navigating whitewater, <laughs> especially river running, which still to this day is, is my single most favorite activity is just paddling down the river with friends from point A to point B, just like you and I did. I think it was last year. Mm-hmm down the middle uh white salmon one of my favorite runs on the planet um it's just Absolutely. you know it's just it's always different with the different river levels there's always different lines to take different eddies to catch and just sharing that with other people is really what gets me jazzed and and just you know feeling the stoke there is just amazing so that's really you know if i had to just pick one Thing to do for the rest of my life that would definitely be it but um i mean of course i love mixing it up because of your river background you know how to run rivers and you know how to prepare for the river including the the outfit that you wear when you've you've introduced the river to open water and ocean people the there's a there's a already a noticeable division in what people wear uh shoes helmets PD, pfds uh, what what's your advice to ocean people to get onto the river uh, to wear the right equipment to outfit themselves correctly? Um, I think it just comes down to the the three main the three main basics that I always recommend: the helmet, the PFD that you wear, not a waist belt, because you're not going to be inflating no waist belt when you're unconscious, and good shoes. And these these are the things that are going to keep you safe. You know, you can't jump off your board in white water and expect to um, not touch the bottom with your feet. Um, and when you fall off a bike and, and, and you're surrounded by air, you, you hit the ground and you bounce. But when you fall off a paddle board and your leg is surrounded by water, there's no bounce. You know, it's like having a 500-pound sumo wrestler smashing your leg into the curb like there's no bounce back so you know it's like 
it hurts a lot worse when you touch things in the bottom of the river when your body's surrounded by water because the river just smashes you into and through things. So, um, you know, I think those are the most important things to consider. Of course, then it comes down to what you're going to wear to keep warm. And really, you know, if, if wetsuits your jam, that's great. Wetsuits have buoyancy. They, they uh, provide a lot of protection naturally. And they're a lot less expensive than dry suits. Uh, coming from whitewater, the dry suit, I believe, for me, is a better option just because of the comfort level and because of how much um, you're moving around and how much flexibility and um, freedom of motion that I like to have. I really enjoy the dry suit a little bit more. Um, but the wetsuits nowadays are super um, flexible, so they're also a great option. Um, so either one of those, pick your poison. And then, uh, and then as far as protection, at least knee and shin at the very least. And that's pretty much all I wear is knee and shin. Uh, rarely do I hit a rock and go supermanning onto my, you know, elbows into other rocks. It's just, uh, I'm not an elbow pad guy because usually I can recognize when I'm about to take a superman and I either try to jump up and unweight my board or, or, or drastically maneuver or simply just hop off or get on my knees or something. So um, I use my knee and shin pads proactively as well as reactively because um, sometimes it's just safer just to jump down onto your knees if you know you're going to come into contact with a rock or something like that. Unweighting the board and jumping or boofing has become a signature move, the Dan Gavir boof. <laughs> Jump boo, yeah. <laughs> the jump boo. Uh, and going back to, to shoes, when a pro athlete from the ocean comes up and says, hey, Dan, take me down the river. I know this is a, an experience you've had in the past. Like, I don't wear shoes. I'm never going to wear shoes. How do, you, how, do you, how do you insist they wear proper footwear? Uh, well, I try to make an assertive recommendation, um, and that's about all I can do. <laughs> and just hopefully, you know, I'm not going to be, you know, giving them a ride to the, you know, Providence Hospital after the run to get their broken foot repaired. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and for me, it's not, it's also about being able to paddle again tomorrow. I don't want to be hurt today and not be able to paddle tomorrow. And I don't want that for any of my friends either. And a lot of times when I've met these folks, they're out here because they've come out here to do a competition or something like whether it was Kai Lenny or Candace Appleby um, or any one of the other number of, uh, you know, high profile athletes that I've shown down the river. Um, I'm like, Hey, you know, it's not a fashion show on the river. Um, <laughs> and you need to be able to be in your top form to do very well this weekend, probably in a race you want or, or here to try to win. Uh, you probably want to, you know, keep your feet in one piece because, you know, it is stand-up <laughs> paddleboarding. So, um, you know, I think that's an important factor that's always been there. And, and that you don't need to go out and buy, like, the most expensive pair of river-specific shoes. Um, you know, you can get, you know, affordable footwear, an old pair of sneakers, or, you know, even some, you know, one-off Chuck Taylors. Uh, work great as well. <laughs> and one controversial piece of equipment, what do you think about leashes? Uh, leashes. On the river. So glad you asked. I was hoping it was going to go here. Um, for me, a leash is a really important piece of equipment to have. Um, but I think you need to know how to use it 
and how it needs to be rigged in order for it to uh, work properly and not become a liability. Obviously, there has been um, several unfortunate accidents involving leashes in moving water, um, mostly because of the people using it were just ignorant about uh, putting it around their ankle and did not, you know, they underestimated the power of the river and how much it will just pin you to the bottom and your foot's Mm going to be upstream and you have absolutely no chance of reaching your ankle to release your leash. Um, Personally, I do not use um, like any kind of like release system because if I need to get away from my board, um, I'm not going to be like looking down, trying to find where the, the, the release is, the manual release. I want both my hands to swim for safety. So I have two automatic, um, basically breakaway systems that are rigged into my leash. And it's basically, um, a small piece of bungee like a three mil piece of bungee that'll simply break at about half my body weight. And then I also use the partial Velcro overlap technique, which is something I developed where almost Mm -hmm. every leash has Velcro where you attach it to the board and where you attach it to yourself or to your life jacket or your waist belt. And I only partially use the Velcro so that I can pull that Velcro. I test it before I get on the river And I make sure that with quite a bit of strength, I can still manually pull that Velcro apart. And I need that leash to be not only at the the leash part um, where it's connected to my body, but also at the leash part where it's connected to the board. Because I've imagined the scenario, let's say uh, I had to swim away from my board in a big rapid and I was able to release. And then the leash stayed with the board and went down and got stuck in a hole and say I swam down into the hole and then got tangled up with the leash again. Well, then that leash needs to be able to release from the board as well under the, you know, under my body weight. So, um, and then I adjust that accordingly. If I'm on a small creek, I usually put a little bit more over or a little bit less overlap so that it's a little bit easier to break away because it's more technical and more likely that my board will get caught on a rock or something like that. Whereas if I'm paddling down Shoshone at 12 grand, big water, I'm going to give it, yeah, I'm going to give it more because the last thing I want to do is go into a big hole and get separated from my board and then have to swim, you know, to river left or river right. And, you know, it's going to be a long swim. Of course, having your board and being able to get your board back to you in a, in a big water is, uh, is a big asset to being safe. Absolutely. Um, and I've seen more injuries come from people who didn't have leashes, who lost their boards, then swam to shore, then hiked back upstream to go find a board which got pinned on a rock, and then they decided to swim across the river and then try to rescue their $1,000 board. And they have opened their themselves up to a lot more chance of becoming injured just in that whole process. Absolutely. So... Um, you know, and I say, you know, if you don't know how to use the leash in the river, don't use one. Just just deal with the swim. Deal with maybe losing your equipment. That's a lot better than, than you know, the consequences, which can be fatal. So um, other than that, I tell people, hey, if you're unsure, then consult a whitewater professional. 
someone who knows, have them check your leash system mm-hmm. and go over it. And for all those who think that, you know, that just having a leash with a manual release system is, is the ticket, I don't agree with that. Because if your shoulder is dislocated, how are you going to release that? If that Velcro is on, just like it would be like on a regular surf sup or something, that thing's not going to release. What if you're unconscious? It's not going to release. It's not. You know, and people are trying to save you and you're tethered to your board and then it gets caught on a rock because you're unconscious. You know, the, the board has to release on its own, period. It has to be a breakaway system. And so I'm hoping that some of the uh, manufacturers out there start to design that into the systems because so far I've seen a lack of that. I've seen quite a few companies out there put out mm-hmm. you know, a system that works great with the waist belt and the nice little shackle with a little you know, donkey ball that you can pull <laughs> or whatever. And uh, that's great, but you know what? That's not going to do you any good. If, if you're really hurting and you got to jump off your board, you're not going to be looking around for that ball. You're not, you, you, need, you need both hands and both legs to swim for safety. And unless you have the opportunity to, to practice with pulling that, uh, that mechanical system, a lot of people don't practice their leash systems, their, their releases, their, their escapes. Understanding what it takes to, to move the board away from themselves, there isn't a lot of practicing I've seen with their release system. People just will click that shackle somewhere on a PFD and they'll call it good because they have a releasable system available to them, but they might not know actually how reliable that system is. Absolutely. And someone rescuing might not know where to find that system or how to use it. So that system needs to break free from both at the board end and at the, where it's connected to your person. Um, Number one is you never put anything around your ankle when paddling on moving water. And that doesn't just go for white water, rivers, creeks and streams that also goes for like um, anywhere where there's an inlet where there's current i mean we've had we've seen accidents even in the ocean where there's just you know incoming or outgoing flow and someone snagged their uh, a regular surf leash um, on a branch under the water or like you know on a rock i mean you hear about guys that at uh pipeline getting held down for the exact same reason because their leash tombstone around um, the reef under the, under the water and it holds them under. So, mm-hmm. you know, this isn't something that's just, you know, happens. On the so river. obviously the leash is an important tool to know how to use and have with you. I, I liken the, the leash to your partner. Whitewater kayakers obviously travel in, in groups uh, so that they, they have each other's back. You know, with a leash, you're attached to a big buoyant, device, your paddleboard. So, you know, you stand up paddleboarding and it can be considered stand up, swim down, but at least you have this buoyant thing that you're attached to that you could float through rapids with. But if you get separated from that board, it's just like a kayaker swimming from his equipment. Rescues are required, self-rescue, getting gear, the garage sale that ensues. So I think a leash is kind of like your partner. Obviously it's not going to perform CPR, but it's, uh, I, I felt more comfortable doing uh, solo trips because of a reliable lease system. Imagine, imagine if we're in the middle of the John Day 
what 180 miles or something and you lost your board man like what's what does that hike out look like yeah it's <laughs> no thanks what is your general thought with a uh, solo paddle boarding on a river um i don't recommend it um i mean i think if it's something that you know super duper well and it's you know, class two, or if you're river surfing or something like that, um, you need to assess the risk. Everyone's different and they make their own decisions however they want to at that time. Um, plus it's not as fun. <laughs> it's always more fun to paddle with a buddy. <laughs> it um, really is. It really is. So, I mean, it doesn't matter if you're in a kayak or a raft or a stand-up paddleboard, you know. If you are going to go out alone, you should at least let someone know where you're going and when you expect to be back and know what to do if you don't report back and where to go looking for you. So, you know, I think if, if you're going to participate in this sport um, and, and do it solo, then, it, then at least having some responsibility like that um, probably make your mom feel a lot better knowing that you're at least doing something. <laughs> Paddleboarding is growing in the United States on the, the river. I think uh, social media is a part of that. People are, are sharing their stoke on Facebook and on Instagram and with their friends. I was really surprised on a recent trip to Europe that I took last fall, how many river paddleboarders there were. I was on a, a river in Austria with over 20 paddlers, quality paddleboarders, who all had the, the same assumption that this is the future of the sport. Uh, what, what are your ideas? What's your magic ball predictions of the, 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 the future of river paddleboarding? Well, I think it's just going to continue on its um, steady, slow growth curve. Um, you know, we've kind of seen the rise and fall of the sport as it became uh, super popular and kind of became, or it is a bucket list thing. And, and there's a lot of people out there. It's like, oh, yeah, I, I did paddleboarding. Yeah, that was fun. I mean, I stood up a little bit. Mostly I was on my knees, you know, I was on vacation in the Bahamas or something. Um, but for the whitewater crowd, you know, I think um, I think it's just going to go through a steady, slow growth. It's, it's a very niche thing. So um, once people kind of get a little taste of it, they love it. I think it looks awkward. <laughs> so to the uh, the onlooker from shore, they might be like, oh, that's not for me. Because a lot of people forming those opinions, like we've seen in a lot of other sports, um, they make a judgment about the sport because of how it looks to them. Um, but they don't take into account how it might feel when they actually do it. And then the people who actually do it and get that feeling and experience that feeling and, and how stoked they are when they get off the river and the whole experience of it, um, they become paddlers for life. Mm -hmm. You know, they really get into it, whether it's being out in nature, whether it's the camaraderie, whether it's the technical challenge or the physical feeling and uh, fitness benefits they get from it or the sheer adrenaline rush. I mean, there's just so many things to love about it that uh, that I think it really is something that once people try, um, they end up sticking with it because it's it's a fairly inexpensive sport too. And you look at it compared to skiing or golf or, or even mountain biking or some of the other sports where A, the equipment costs more or B, you have to pay to do it, you know, with the 
greens fees or lift tickets or whatever um you know once you get your your gear sorted out and kind of a group to paddle with you know you just got to get your butt to the river and that's it there's there's usually no um you don't have to pay to play you know the rivers are free for all of us to run and and diff got to send a shout out to the the uh ACA and the AWA um two very important organizations out there that help keep whitewater free to the public to use Perfect. and they've made access um they've made access a reality for for most river runners around the world um so that we do have fair access and people can't just buy up all the land around the river and and bar us from getting there so um i'm really uh, grateful for um having the free access to go and, and paddle down rivers and explore beautiful places in nature that you just aren't going to see from the seat of your car. Absolutely. Shout out to the American Whitewater Association. They've done a lot in lobbying for open waters and clean water too. So that's fantastic. Once you get on moving water, it's hard to go back to, to flat water lakes unless you're training. <laughs> uh, but I guess the ocean, there's the ocean too, you know, moving water, that, that turbulence. Who do you think the, the, who do you think the, who makes the best river paddler? Is it a person who is retired whitewater kayaker? Is it a, a mountain biker who's never touched a river? Who, who is this sport for? You know, I really think that the low-hanging fruit in the sport is um, quite a few um, expert-level whitewater enthusiasts, whether they come from a kayak, a raft, um, an open canoe or whatever, um, they're looking for just another way to get down the river and learn something new. They don't have an ego that says, hey, I can't go out there and, and kind of kook around a little bit. Um, being able to go down class two and three and get the same type of challenge that um, I might have to get paddling class five in my whitewater kayak. Once you get really good at kayaking, there's only one way to go with it. You're either you're either doing flips and tricks and spins in a hole or you're paddling class five and class five is life threatening just by nature. And so to get that technical challenge in that rush, you know, there's a lot of kayakers out there and now they're parents, now they're husbands and wives and whatever. And they just, it's just not worth the risk anymore, but they still thrive. They still have a passion for that feeling of that technical challenge and that, that uh, I call it that emotional roller coaster of being scared shitless and then getting <laughs> through the rapid and then being stoked out of their brain um, that they made it, that it's just um, that whole um, feeling is just kind of addictive. And uh, I really think that's one of the big thing that draws people to whitewater and draws people to just extreme sports like that. Whereas stand up paddling, you don't have to take it to such an extreme thing. You can paddle down the, the, the town run in, in Reno and, and, and still get the same kind of feeling, you know, just by making it through there. You're like fist pumping, so stoked that you just made it through standing, you know, like yeah. I remember watching video of you going through Reno River Fest, I think four or five years ago, and you made it through the big hole at high water. And there's like 15,000 people like on their <laughs> like cheering for you just as hard as they cheered for Dane Jackson, who just threw a thousand point, you know, freestyle <laughs> kayak ride and 
you know, that he's like, you know, an alien in a kayak. And, and you just like paddled through it standing up and you got the same amount of applause. So um, <laughs> the stoke is there and uh, it's really cool. And that's contagious, you know, and I think that's where the, the camaraderie and the community part of it really plays a big part of the uh, whitewater SUP thing. And then also you have to run a shuttle. You will not always have to, but usually you're running a shuttle. So there's, there's all that. There's like, you got to work together. You know, it's not like, it's not like going surfing in the ocean. You drive there with your with your surfboard and, and you wax it by yourself. You don't need anyone to help you put your leash on or get you from point A to point B and you go out and you catch your waves and and, and that fun, you know, is, is had by you. And and yeah, some of the lineup might share that, but there just isn't that camaraderie and that kind of um that sharing feeling that that you get on a river. I've never really experienced that, you know, out surfing. I shouldn't say never. Very rarely do I experience that. And unfortunately, surfing feels, if surfing does feel more territorial. Yeah, extremely territorial. So um, I tried surfing a bunch when, um, when I was younger and going to college in Montana and drive out to the coast and, and, and go out surfing or even worse, go take my kayak out in the surf. Um, you know, <laughs> I didn't make any friends. I was just like, you know what? Surfing's not for me. I like people that want to have fun together. Um, and I just didn't get that when I went to seaside in my kayak. <laughs> and paddled out to the point. Yeah. No. <laughs> I, I, no. I thought I was going to die. <laughs> well, even Jerry Lopez has had his vehicle vandalized at the point because they didn't recognize his uh, his vehicle. He's not a local. Who's this kook surfing out uh, at the point? And he comes back and his vehicle's vandalized. I don't think that really happens uh, on the river unless it's just some random meth addict who wants your stereo. Exactly. But, you know, sharing the stoke on the river is what keeps me paddling. When you paddle by a commercial raft group, people are taking photos and cheering. And when you, you know, kayakers are, are for the most part, pretty supportive of the, the lower rating rivers. And I have to share it with you. I was doing uh, a, a self shuttle on the uh, Clay Ellum during Memorial weekend. So I'd park the, the rig I had to take out, hike up to the put-in, and I probably had a hundred high-five fist pumps of people at camps or along the, the highway. Memorial Day weekend, people were out. But I just was reminding myself, here's this beautiful Class Two river, essentially a no-consequence river, speaking in relative terms. You know, I could just spin the board around and boof on rocks, and, and you know, kids would run to the, the water and say, Mom, look at this. And that's... That stoke, that encouragement, that enthusiasm is why I paddle. And they reminded me that I enjoy it and I'm, you know, I've been paddling more. Uh, I hadn't really paddled a lot this entire year, so it's, it's good to, to remind myself of why I do this sport. And I think just getting back to where the conversation kind of started, um, you said you were in Europe and there were so many more people there, you know, into it. And I really think that a lot of that comes from the fact that Europe maybe doesn't have as much access to the ocean as the United States does. I mean, I haven't, I don't know exactly how much coastline they have there. We have here. Um, but really, you know, especially you talk about Austria, um, (laughs) they don't have any access to the ocean. The river is their ocean. 
and it is in their backyard. And I think sometimes when you look at like Germany, Austria, France, Italy, Switzerland, um, just kind of is like kind of the main heart of whitewater in Europe as well. Um, they love the mountains. They love nature. They love um, the rivers already. And I think they're just a little bit um, less concerned maybe about how it looks or how the sport looks or anything like that. And they just want to get out there and get after it and have fun. And um, things there that are niche like that tend to grow too. I mean, like I would say, sure. the rad extreme sports always start in Europe and, and France and the USA, you know, and they're usually the two countries that kind of push the limits, whether it come, whether it's freestyle snowboarding or free ride mountain biking or I don't know, like wingsuiting, like, <laughs> you know, and now stand up paddle boarding. Um, so yeah, it's I love going to France and, and Austria, Switzerland, Europe um, these days because um, the popularity in those countries is like the popularity that we see in Colorado these days. And Colorado really is the epicenter for whitewater sup in the USA, if not the world, with more people competing in in even the mountain games, first year we had SUP, I think we had like something like 65 people do the downriver sprint. And I mean, there's probably wasn't 65 whitewater suppers in the rest of the whole country. So um, that's really cool. And I love to see that. And uh, and so I think that that growth is, is slowly but surely just going to keep kind of chugging away. And now with the inflatable boards, it lasts a long time. Um, and, and the play parks where people can just like literally like ride their bike with their board down the street and like have fun, like in Bend or in Reno mm -hmm. or in Salida or so many other places where they're developing these downtown play parks. Uh, what a great thing to do. And like you can get kids into it and, and, and moms want to do it because, you know, the, the women out there, they're not super stoked on sitting in a kayak and, and smashing their beautiful faces on the bottom of the river. You know, the first thing you're going to hit when you flip over in a kayak is your head on the bottom of the river. Like that's not a super awesome thing to think about, you know, on a standard paddleboard, <laughs> you just fall off, climb back on and keep going. There's no like <laughs> huge barrier for entry, like learning the role uh, and for kayaking. That's, that's definitely something that that's, that's a challenge for some people. Listening to Mike Harvey talking about the kids at Salida that I've also witnessed, the kids in Bend, there's a new generation of watermen because of the, 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 the play parks. He was talking about, you know, the kids just jumping out on boogie boards and, and lap after lap. You see that in Bend, too, where they just throw themselves in and go through the holes and, you know, jump in, try to, you know, body surf these things. And they're just so familiar with what an eddy line is and what current is before they even get actually on a river craft. It's, it's an amazing thing to watch. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And I think, you know, it's funny because probably some of their parents are like watching from shore going, hmm, my kid could teach me a lot about that right now. <laughs> um, but it's really cool to see that, that the parents are um, making that possible for their kids to be out there. The communities are encouraging it. And um, yeah, we've got like a whole new generation of, of uh, whitewater enthusiasts that uh, 
surely will be, um, you know, stewards for, for the rivers and, and keeping those free flowing, which I think is really important. Um, not only to continue our awesome sport, but most importantly, to keep these amazing resources uh, alive and healthy in the future. In a few minutes we have left, I have a couple of more questions. And one of the, the questions is about your new sport, kind of a new sport. Yeah, you're, you've definitely celebrated the diversity of a variety of sports, whether it be on the water or on, on land. And being in an epicenter, a wind sports epicenter, tell us about kiting. Not kiting, but the, the, the wing. The wing the foil. Wing foil. So, uh, they still don't even know what to call it. Like, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it reminds me of when stand-up paddling started because there was like all these debates online. Do we call it sup? Oh, that sounds stupid. What about paddleboarding? Whitewater paddle? Like, no one knows what to call it still. I mean, we're calling it uh, wing surfing, foil wing, um, wing riding, whatever. And it's basically where you're holding on to a windsurfer that's not attached to your board and riding some sort of, of board. Um, some people are really digging it on a regular sup or a surfboard and just going out and catching some waves and, and cruising around. And then um, at another level, and this is the reason why it has grown so quickly and become so popular, is because of the advent of hydrofoiling. And now that you can ride on a board with a hydrofoil, it doesn't require like the arms of Arnold Schwarzenegger to hang on to that <laughs> thing because once you're up on the foil, it's a really light feeling. There's not a lot of resistance. If you're riding an 11 foot board and you're trying to hold on to a, a wing or a windsurfer without a harness, it takes a lot. Of, it takes a lot of strength. Like you're going to get tired pretty quickly. Um, but when you're up on the foil, uh, it's it's easy. It's light as a feather. It's it's like you know, it's like holding a paper bag up over your head. So um, the feeling is just amazing, Paul. I, I tell you what, uh, my life has been an eternal search for the magic carpet ride. <laughs> and, and next to next to uh, Whitewater Sup, this is this is right there. So um, being able to fly across the water at twenty plus miles an hour. Um, on a hydrofoil, you know, 30, 40 inches above the water um, is really an amazing feeling. Uh, the low impact aspect of the sport I really enjoy um, as someone who's got some pretty um, blown up knees <laughs> and, uh, and uh, some old back injuries from, from boofing one too many waterfalls in my kayak. Um, I really enjoy the low impact feeling that the hydrofoil gives me. Um, and then just the allure of a new sport, of learning something new, of, of going back to um, being like completely new at something. I love that. You know, I love being out there and kooking out and, and like coming back and going, you know what? I'm twice as good today as I was yesterday. What changed? And that's, <laughs> the, yeah, yes. That, you know, it's like when you get into anything um, new, your your learning curve is so steep that every day you're super stoked because you literally are twice as good as the day before, and um, and that's a really fun aspect of the sport. And it just seems to be catching on. I think um, a big part of it is because of accessibility. Um, a lot of kite boarders are getting into it because kites need a lot of room to set up and spread out, 
Um, you don't need someone to launch and land you, but it certainly helps. And just the access for just going down to the water, throwing your board in. Um, you can literally prone paddle. You know, if I wanted to, I could go down to the marina where the motor boats launch in Hood River, throw my board off the, the dock and just prone paddle out to the wind line and throw the wing up. Like, you can't do that with a kite. Like, if you don't have wind where you launch, you're not kiteboarding. Um, so that makes it a really nice thing. And then just, it's just a little bit more simple with all the gear compared to no lines. And windsurfing. <laughs> yeah, no lines. And, you know, with windsurfing, there's quite a bit of setup and takedown and, and uh, a lot of gear and stuff like that. So um, I think that's become very attractive. And now people are like, you know what, I could probably do that on my local lake and, you know, Green Mountain Reservoir up at, you know, in Park City at Deer Valley Res or or who knows where, random lakes in, in Georgia or, or wherever. So um, we're seeing a lot of growth in those areas that would typically be epicenters for mm. windsurfing, kiteboarding, just because uh, they're windy and have access or beaches or whatever. So, well, that certainly could sell the sport. I could, now I'm thinking the, the, the boundary waters even potentially. Absolutely. Absolutely. And with the bigger wings now, a six and seven meter, uh, wings that, uh, you can ride in, in 10 knots and, and be up and hydrofoiling around. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Um, the feeling you're going to get and the, and what little wind you really need to get up and get riding. Huh. Now I'm thinking, you know, because my background tends to be multi-day trips, hiking, skiing, paddling. Could you do a multi-day kite foil trip? Like I'm thinking Baja. Uh, absolutely. You absolutely could. Um, I think there would be some trial and error. You'd have to figure out some equipment and you'd have to go pretty bare bones on, on your support gear, but, uh, I don't see why not. And, and you don't really have to be riding a foil board. Like you could just take a 12 foot sup and tow another 12 foot sup behind you with everything, including the kitchen sink and just downwinder. And the wing could actually become a tool for people that are already doing those types of mm -hmm. kayaking or paddleboarding adventures. Like mm -hmm. the wing could actually be something that a kayaker could use maybe effectively more than um, like a kite or something like that because of the, um, the simplicity of it and how compact it actually gets. So um, it's pretty cool. Um, it's pretty cool. And now with the whole technology with, inflatables and and everything like that and lightweight fabrics i mean uh, some of the wings are coming in at you know just a couple pounds huh interesting interesting now the brain is turning yeah, it, <laughs> i can see i can see the i can see the uh, squirrel cage going there uh, because i think i asked you a little bit last year i was asking some people could you do can you take a kite board down and do a multi-day tour in baja but now it seems like the the wing would be probably a better option but be, it would be. be honest what's the learning curve uh it's super easy okay. i mean it's it's you're gonna learn how how to how to control a wing and and get out on the water way faster than you're going to be able to learn how to kiteboard or windsurf. Okay. 
for the most part. I mean, it's easy to go fly a single line kite, <laughs> um, but you're not kiteboarding, um, you know, and it's pretty easy to go out and just hang on to a windsurfer um, until you drop it in the water and then you got to like pick it up. You know, the uphaul is like difficult. <laughs> and then the water start is like trying to learn how to roll a kayak. So it's that's extremely difficult. So um, I think that it's going to grow. I think that it could be really big in the future. I, I think it could be as big as windsurfing or as big as sub, hmm. Um, hmm. you know, five years from now. Uh, I think there's going to be centers. I think there's going to be, uh, you know, I think it's going to be big. I think the racing part of it could be really big too, because um, of the whole hydrofoil aspect of it and how compact it is and how close riders could be to each other, that it could be really competitive and really fun to watch some like course racing with these wings. So in this, in this episode, we've gotten a little history of river paddleboarding and now we have a, a view of the future with a, with a wing at least in some sort of open water environment. Maybe it could even be a tool. For, who knows? Who knows? But I like the idea of multi-day touring. Uh, as, as states are starting to open up, we're going to wrap it up here pretty in a, in a few. Uh, as states are starting to open up and people are accessing the backcountry and getting out more, uh, what are your thoughts of what's going on? It's still crazy time. We're still in a quarantine. Now there, there are riots in the streets and, and legitimate protests uh, against certain things. Uh, How's your world, and what do you see happening? Well, I live in a small town, and um, we've been very fortunate to not have um, been hit by the pandemic too hard so far, but um, lately it has been kind of blowing up. I mean, we have 37 cases now, and two weeks ago we had like 12. Um, so it just takes a couple little incidences, and then it, it blows up pretty quick. Um, Man, I never would have imagined it a year ago if someone said, you know, the whole country's going to, the whole world's going to shut down in a year because of a pandemic, because of a, of a virus, you know, because of something that travels, it's airborne, you can get, and it kills people like that quickly. Um, I wouldn't have believed them. And uh, it's scary. Like, it's pretty scary um, for sure. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel for anyone who's uh, lost anyone from it. And um, it's just been um, a pretty challenging time to, to get through. And um, I think some of uh, the silver lining from it, though, has brought a lot of people a lot closer to their loved ones and their families, literally, and has helped um, a lot of people kind of get back to the the basics of what's the most important to them, you know, and those, those relationships that they form and those, uh, those personal connections that we have as humans, you know, you can't replace that with, with monetary things or physical possessions. And, and, uh, so I think that's kind of been a little bit of the silver lining, but it is scary. And, and now knowing that, that they don't even have any definitive evidence that says that if you've had it, you won't get it again. Uh, some people are saying you can get it again. Um, so that's kind of scary. So um, it'll be interesting to see where we are in a year from now. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the United States has uh, could have done things a lot differently to help uh, curb the spread as quickly as it happened. Um, 
I'm glad they've done what they've uh, done so far. And uh, we've been lucky enough to uh, get through it without seeing um, a million people die. Um, it's uh, it's crazy. I mean, I just I can't believe it. I mean, um, and then with now with all the stuff happening with racism and everything um, is just I don't know. It just it's just such a bummer. You know, I just I can't believe that we're still dealing with that, like that there isn't justice for every single human on the planet, no matter what they look like or where they come from. And um, I think it's time. I think it's time that people open their eyes and that, uh, you know, that the stuff is happening now that that is bringing more awareness to the justice that, that the people deserve. But this should have happened a long time ago. So absolutely. And, and, and you know, it, it's, it's always good to have a, a catalyst to do that. And, you know, I the pandemic was a catalyst for me to start a podcast and it's and the podcast has allowed me to start listening better. The the race relations in the United States is making me realize that outdoor recreation is a pretty white entitled sport. So I've invited a, a few African-Americans or, or people of different ethnicity than I typically see on the river to be on the show. So I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to um, some people in the climbing industry and in the paddling industry and the surfing industry uh, who happen to be, you know, different looking than than me. So to get their perspective on, you know, the Stoke outdoors and how it may be compromised because of the color of their skin. I hope it's not, but uh, we'll be finding out soon. Awesome. Well, um, I'm just, you know, super grateful that you called me to be on the show. And, uh, I look forward to seeing um, you on the river in the future. And uh, a lot of the people um, that I wasn't able to see this year, because normally I'm in Colorado. I've been in Colorado this last weekend for the last 20 years. Um, of course, the, the Mountain Games got canceled this year. And, um, you know, I miss all my 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 whitewater brothers and sisters out there and from across the planet that um, normally I get to see every year and it's kind of a reunion so uh, definitely thinking about everyone and, and miss everyone in that respect and and I hope everyone's safe and healthy and uh, and happy and uh, I really just can't um, I can't you know be more grateful for all the, the lessons I've learned on and around the river. Some of the most important lessons for my life have been learned on and around and from the people that I've met um, on the river. Yeah, and in that community. So it's uh, it's been a lifelong uh, adventure there. And, and uh, yeah, it's been great. I can't uh, thank all my friends and family enough for the support they've given me to follow my passions there. That's amazing. Thank you so much, Dan. Before uh, the pandemic, I was at a fundraiser in Portland for uh, the Freshwater Trust, and they were really emphasizing, find your home river. Mm. And that's a place, that's a psychology, that's a community. Finding your home river really means something. And I encourage everyone to find their own home river. And thank you for sharing stories about your river, Dan. Absolutely, Paul. You, uh, Take care down there in, uh, in Reno. Have a great time on the mighty Truckee and the American Rivers. I know you're going to be hitting those pretty soon. And uh, be safe. And until I see you again, um, yeah, 
be safe, be healthy. Thank you, sir. It's always a great time when you're around. Take care. Have a great day. Thanks. Keep off.